listening to you. Job chapter 26 this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. You just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands, and then you can read along even as we're speaking and studying the Word together, which is the best way. We remember that Job was described in the very first verse of the book. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. God happened to make uh, mention of this. We won't say that he happened to. He deliberately did so. Mentioned the character of Job to Satan in that very first chapter and said, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Now, to that, uh, Satan replied, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And Satan suggested that Job was not serving God or walking with God out of a love for God, but he was obeying God and serving God out of what he could get out of God. And that if God removed the rewards of obeying him and serving him, then not only would Job abandon God, but that he would also curse God to his face. And the the accusation that the devil was making was not just against Job, but against men in general. And it was an accusation that was made against God. And essentially the devil was saying, listen, no one will walk with you, God. No one will have a relationship with you just for the relationship. These people are all paid to walk with you. You keep them in line, you keep them obedient, you keep them in this place by the perks that you give them, the benefits of wealth and health, these kinds of things. No one would willingly walk with you and have a relationship with you merely for the relationship, only for you. That was the accusation. I mean, just, there's nothing worse that you could throw in the face of God than the fact that all of us in this room and everyone in the whole wide world in human history, all of us are just mere mercenaries in this relationship for what we can get. And sadly, that kind of an attitude is even nurtured a little bit today. But the idea was he loves your blessings, but he doesn't love you. Take those blessings away and he'll curse you. To your face, and so God allowed Job to attack, allowed Satan to attack Job concerning both his wealth and his health. And Job's response at the end of chapter one was: Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, "That's it, I'm done with God." That's not what he said. We'd have a one-chapter book, and we'd be on into the next book of the Bible. But he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. And he worshipped God. The entire angelic realm was watching this whole scene. What would Job do? Was the accusation true or was it not? And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He praised the Lord and he worshipped the Lord. His relationship did not end with God, with the loss of even all of his health and all of his wealth and his family. 
And he said, in all of this, Job did not sin nor, nor charge God with wrong. He said, I bless his name. And it's one of the most stunning communications, or whatever the right word is, of faith on behalf of man toward God to be found in all of the Bible. Job's worship of the Lord at that moment. Now, Satan's accusation as a result of what Job did here was to prove Satan's accusation to be wrong. Job did love God for the relationship, not because of what he could get out of the relationship. And then just when you think things couldn't get any worse for Job, enter his three friends. Job's got only one thing left in his life by the time the devil got done with him. That was his relationship with the Lord and his wife, but we won't go into that. But the one thing that he has, the one great thing that he has left in his life is his relationship with the Lord. And these three friends then come in and unwittingly, to be sure, attempt to rob him of that relationship by casting doubt upon God's love for him, God's favor upon his life, that God was against him, that there had to be secret sin or hypocrisy in his life. That's the only way that God would allow something like this to happen in a person's life. And none of that, of course, was true at all. And Job's friends, as we saw last week, they ceased their arguments at the end of chapter 25. And, but in terms of the accusation of the devil, the, the book is still open. There still is this place where until Job ultimately is before the Lord, we don't know if what the devil did and then what the friends do, and then pretty soon he disavows God and he walks away from God altogether. So if we don't know the rest of the book, this whole thing is still in play. And so these final chapters uh, of uh, chapters 26 through 31 here, it speaks about how Job now responds not only to the devil's attack upon his life, but also upon these accusations, false accusations by his friends. And so he makes now his final speech to his three friends and doubtless to a crowd that has gathered around uh, him and his friends by this time. And Job answered chapter 26, and he said to specifically to Bildad, who has just been telling him about the power and the greatness of God. And as we saw last week, Job did not have any problem with the power and the greatness of God. So here is Bildad talking to Job about how great and powerful God is, and Job is essentially going to say to him, that is not my problem. I've never challenged the greatness of God. I've never doubted the power of God. My whole issue is, in the light of God's power and in, in the light of his greatness, why is he not doing something about my situation? So you have the two classic uh, trials of faith that Christians face. Some people have a crisis of faith because they doubt the power of God. Other people have a crisis of faith because they know the power of God. It's a part of their history. They know what God could do in an instant and not break a sweat in doing it. And yet he does not do this in my circumstances. He could change this in a nanosecond. And it is that second crisis of faith that Job is facing. He knows God very, very well. And, he, and it is the fact that God is powerful, but is not using his power to rectify what Job thinks to be an unjust situation and to solve it for him that creates the crisis. And so here is Bildad 
answering questions that nobody's asking, as we saw last week, and Job is basically going to remind him of this. Job answered and he said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit came from you? And basically he's saying to him, you haven't been any help to me at all. Again, my question is not related to the power of God. You're answering questions that I'm not asking at all. Who prompted you to speak? Who writes your material? And then keeps you talking. Uh, in other words, if... If this is how helpful you've been to people, counseling them through your life, he's an older man, then why do you keep attempting to counsel people? They're a little on edge at this point in time. The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked uh, before him and destruction has no covering. And so Job now heads into a description of the power of God. And it's almost like, You want to talk about the power of God? You want to talk about the power of God like I'm a a nobody? I don't understand these things. I don't understand God. I don't understand these things about God. You want to talk about how much you know about the power of God and how much I know about the power of God? And he now kind of confirms the greatness of God from his perspective. And that is God is ruler over all of the... Uh, death and over the place of the dead. The dead tremble, and those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked, that is the place of the dead, before him, and destruction has no covering. He stretches out uh, the north over an empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. So he talks about uh, Job, not, uh, the Lord not only ruling over death, ruling over the place of the dead, but also uh, God's ruling over outer space and the earth and how the, uh, all of the planets and the earth are ha- hung upon nothing. And so Job is describing, interestingly enough, centuries before science taught it, that God hangs the earth on nothing. So it's just kind of a poetic description of the place that it has in terms of its orbit out in the universe. And, and it, this statement by Job preceded Newton's concept of gravitational attraction by thousands of years. In those days when Job is talking about these things, the greatness of God, what he knew about God, in those days much of the ancient world felt that the earth was on the back of an elephant out in the universe. These were the concepts, the highest, loftiest concepts of man as it relates to the existence of earth and and the context of earth. And here is Job talking about God, and he realizes things that we wouldn't even discover in kind of a formal way for thousands of years. He binds up the water in the thick clouds, and yet the clouds are not broken under it. Why don't they tear under the amount of moisture that's carried in them. He covers the face of his throne and he spreads his cloud over it. In other words, he hides his throne from the face of man. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. He rules over light and over darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his 
uh, rebuke, speaking of earthquakes. And he stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. And so he can create storms, and he can calm uh, storms. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens, speaking of the creation of the stars and the constellations. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent, and appears to be a reference to the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? And so he speaks about all of this in terms of the creation of God and how the creation of God testifies to the existence of God and to the power of God. And yet he says, what we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, what we understand with our senses, it's, it is just like having a, a magnificent wedding gown. And all you're able to do is to just touch two inches on the hem of the base of the wedding gown. That's all the understanding that we have of all of this whole thing that is God and his powers and his ways. One day we'll lay this body aside and we'll go into heaven. And, I, and people talk about time-space continuums and things that we're limited by and all of this. I don't understand any of it, but <clears throat> I believe it to be true in the sense that once we leave all of this and go into the glory of heaven, we will realize we don't know nothing about God and even about his power. And so here is the, the, the power of God and Job just talking about. We can talk about his power. We can describe it the best way we can describe it with the greatest intellects in human history. And we are just scratching the surface related to God's uh, power. Now, God's, God's power or the creation of all the creation around us testifies to the existence of God. Wherever you have a creation, you have a creator. Wherever you have design, you have a designer. And it also speaks not only to his existence, but it speaks to his power. And so creation is a... Uh, it, it witnesses to God, but it witnesses basically to his power. It does witness to his uh, his wisdom by, on the basis of design. But to really get to know God, and this is one of the reasons I love Psalm 19, as it talks about this, it talks about God and the manifestation of the revelation of God uh, through his creation, but then it moves after a few verses to the manifestation of God through his word. We can only know so much about God from the creation then to get to know him better, once a person realizes there is a God, there is a designer behind this design, there is a creator behind this creation, how do I get to know him? And then that person turns to the Bible, and now they move into a vastly superior revelation in terms of God. And then the Psalm 19 then moves on later in that Psalm, the third part of it, to speak of God's concern for the human soul and for us to have a relationship with him. And the ultimate knowledge of God comes not from creation, but it comes from Jesus. If you've seen me, he said, you've seen the Father. And, and so Jesus is that great, great revelation uh, of God. And so here is this, you want to talk about greatness, I can talk about greatness. And then chapter 27, he said, Moreover, Job continued his discourse, and he said, 
as God lives. So now he's going to take a vow. That's what it means. And, 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 and he's saying, this is, what I'm going to say right now is as certain as the existence of God. As God lives, who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. Someone's going to get a spanking. So that Job, he crosses a line a few times. And God's going to pull him up short when God finally starts to talk to him on some, on some things. And so here he felt he was being treated unjustly uh, by the Lord. None of it was true. It says, God's not right, rising up and he's not defending me. The problem with Job is the problem that we face when we find ourselves in the middle of circumstances that we feel should be taken care of rather quickly by God is that just because God hadn't done it yet doesn't mean he's not going to do it. There's a whole timing issue with God's work in our lives. And so he's wait, God is waiting for the exact right time to step in. God is going to defend him. God is going to rise up from his throne in heaven, and he is going to defend Job before his friends. And through Scripture, his reputation all through history. He just hadn't done it yet. And the Bible in Psalm 37 speaks the same thing to be true of each of us. But ultimately, before everything plays out in terms of unjust accusations brought against us, that God will rise up and he will bring forth our righteousness and make it as apparent as the sun is at noon. And I, 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 I've walked with the Lord for a little while. I don't know how much I know, but I know a little bit. And one of the great things about walking with the Lord for a period of time is you get to see how long God takes sometimes to do things, but then how outrageously excellent He is that He waits for the perfect timing to do what He's going to do. I've seen it over and over again, where someone is down, they're being slandered, they're being misunderstood, being misrepresented, the whole thing. I mean, it's like the whole world... Whole Christian world sometimes is mounted up against them. They zip their lip and they walk their way through it and they trust their reputation to the Lord. Sometimes you've got to wait years. Sometimes you've got to wait decades. But the day comes when God brings it out into the open that this man or this woman was right and everyone else was wrong, but he waits for his time to do it, but it's a promise that he will do it. And so he said, as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God is in my nostrils, as long as I have life, my lips will not speak wickedness nor my tongue utter deceit, far be it from me. And here is the deceit or the wickedness that he wouldn't speak, and that was to confess that they were right about him, that there was secret sin in his life when there wasn't. That I should say, say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I will hold fast, and I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me. 
as long as I live. I will not be cowed by you people. I'm not going to get you to admit, to get me to admit something that's false about myself just because you're bullying me in a vulnerable condition. And so he just simply uh, would not do it. One of the things that he has, and it's a very valuable thing to have in life, is he has a clean conscience. He has a clear conscience. Imagine if he did have a secret life of hypocrisy or secret sin and all of this happened and then his three friends started to speak all these things to him. What kind of confidence would he have before God? He wouldn't have any confidence before God. But just living just a kind of a quiet, simple, holy life before the Lord, he knows all of this is true and they're not going to rob him of the life that he knows he has lived before God. He said, may my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises against me be like the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much? If God takes away his life, will God hear his cry? When trouble comes upon him, will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? And so here he calls on the Lord to uh, uh, curse his enemies and uh, that these enemies that he has, he's probably talking about his three friends, but there's probably, as we'll see a little bit later, a crowd that is gathering around now for these discussions, and they're listening to all of these things happening. They're apparently nodding their head in agreement with Job's three friends and the false accusations against him. And basically, Job was saying uh, to, to them, he counted them as enemies, and, he say, and he's saying, may God put you in my shoes. May you know what it's like to be in my place and then falsely accused on top of it. Now, in the ancient world, there was uh, the what part of the law and even the law of Moses is that if you falsely accused a person of a particular crime or wrongdoing and it was found out that you were wrong, it was a false accusation, then you were sentenced to whatever the sentence would have been to the person if they had been found guilty incorrectly. And so Job is saying, you have all accused me wrongly. And according to the law of the land and law before God, law of Moses is a little far further out from the time that Job was alive. And he's basically saying, in light of the fact that you accuse me wrongly, then what you're trying to put on me, may that become your portion. Now, in the New Testament, we have a little higher standard for dealing with our enemies than calling for God's judgment on them. Though it does feel good uh, to do that sometimes. It's right there in First Fleshalonians, <laughs> underlined in my Bible. But Jesus, of course, on the cross, I mean, the ultimate injustice in human history. The ultimate injustice. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And then to entrust the situation into the hands of the Lord. He said, I will teach you about the hand of God. And so he instructs them concerning the wicked and what, what is the Almighty, I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? This is the portion 
of a wicked man with God. And he's going to talk about uh, the end of the wicked and, and the miserableness of the life of the wicked. And it kind of appears that he contradicts his arguments of chapter 24, uh, where he's talking about the fact that you know, the wicked sometimes live to long life and they have prosperity and their children, they live to an old age and they have their children around them and all of this kind of thing. And what he was basically saying there was that there are the exceptions to the rules. All the wicked don't have a miserable life. But the general rule is that it's a terrible way to live and there's terrible consequences. It's always a terrible way to live, but uh, uh, the, but generally there's always these kind of consequences associated uh, with it. And so he's, he wants to let them know, listen, earlier when I was talking about the wicked, I wasn't saying that was a great way. I can denounce the wicked as well as you denounce the wicked. This is the portion of, the wicked, of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, if he has a large family, it's for the sword. In other words, they die of violence. You see how many... Wicked people get involved in all kinds of things, and they not only die, but their whole family is murdered or destroyed as a result of it. They get caught in the crossfire. And his offspring will not be satisfied with bread. They'll experience hunger. And those who survive him will be buried in death, speaking of disease and plague that comes. And their widows shall not weep. It's always a bad sign when the wife doesn't weep at the funeral. So they, even they knew this was a wicked man and uh, good riddance. Sometimes wives know a lot more than they can really let on at the moment. And though he heaps up silver like dust and piles of clothing like clay. Remember Melda Marcos's shoes in the closet? How many pairs were thousands and thousands? He may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth. In other words... All of his, there's the loss of all of the wealth and possessions. He'll lose his house. His house is no more secure than the cocoon of a moth or like a booth, a temporary kind of shade structure that a watchman makes out in an, in an agricultural field. It's just kind of temporary. Isn't it kind of funny, you know, you watch um, uh, like Madoff who did that whole scam, just you know, rip people off of billions and billions of dollars, not just millions or tens of millions of dollars. And, and you just look at that and you just think, what are, what are they thinking? What, you, wouldn't you rather have one toaster in your home that belongs to you and no one can take it away because you're living a righteous life. Then to own half the world and to know ultimately one day everybody's going to catch up to you and you're going to lose all of it and then everything's going to move back into the whole cycle and progression of wealth in the world once again. I, I guess I don't understand it. So your money is safe with me if you want to invest. I'm building apartments in a swamp in Florida. <laughs> the rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. 
He opens his eyes and he is no more. In other words, the wicked man lies down rich when he goes to sleep and he wakes up poor. Boom, gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. The tempest steals him away at night. His life is consumed by terrors and by fears. And the east wind carries him away and he's gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. And, and so he's swept away as quickly as something is swept away in a great storm. And then men, speaking of righteous men, will then clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. The righteous will rejoice at the fall of the wicked. And then chapter 28, uh, Job details uh, the kind of the, the great efforts that men put into um, the seeking out and the attaining of wealth as compared to the effort and, and the dangers that they're willing to expose themselves to in order to uh, get the true riches of life, which is the wisdom of God. He said, surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and he searches every recess for ore and the darkness and the shadow of death. So he's talking about mining under the ground in order to find uh, minerals and to find gems and wealth. He breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. They hang far away from men. They swing to and fro for as for the earth From it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. And that path, in terms of the mining and how all of the work that men do underground, again, the dangers that they put themselves through, the risk of their health, all of these things in order to gain material wealth, no bird knows anything about it. You don't want to be a bird down in a mine. Nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions, they go on about their business above the ground. They don't know anything about this desire of man. Nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint and he overturns the mountain at its roots, kind of a a, a strip mining situation. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his his eye uh, sees every precious thing, looking for diamonds and gems and all, and he dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden, he brings forth to light. And so here is the great, and we see it even today, the great effort that people are willing uh, to go through in order to gain physical wealth. I mean, there's no limit to what people are willing to do in order to gain that. But then in contrast to the true riches, which is the wisdom of God, somebody says, well, come on, Pastor. I mean, you've got gems and diamonds and gold and all of this kind of thing. I mean, let's not sniff at that in comparison to wisdom. If, If somebody came to you tonight as a Christian, you as a Christian, came to you tonight and said, I will give you the whole world if you would be willing to let go of everything that Christ has brought into your life. That would be the biggest no-brainer for me and the whole wide world. To live under His wisdom 
I, I don't want to be on this. I don't want to be in this world. Listen, I like ice cream cones. I like a cup of tea. I like life. But I don't want to be here not one minute past my appointed time. I don't want to outlive his grace by 30 seconds. That's how dependent I have become, and I know I speak for you as well, upon what he has brought into my life to survive this world, to navigate this world. You could offer me the whole world right in front of this pulpit if I would give it up, all all that I have for Christ, for all of those riches, and it wouldn't take me half a second to make that decision. The value of wisdom, the wisdom of God, the wisdom that God has brought into our lives. Without that wisdom, we would be casualties, every single one of us. It's wonderful to live under his wisdom. And so Job goes on and he says, but where can wisdom be found? Talking about the priceless value of wisdom. Where can it be found? Uh, can it be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man doesn't know its value. Man doesn't appreciate wisdom, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not with me. The sea says, it's not with me. You don't have to, you know, go across the ocean uh, to try and uh, find it. It cannot be purchased with gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, it, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz uh, in comparison to wisdom, for the price of wisdom is above rubies." The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. If you don't have two quarters to rub together tonight in your life, but you are walking in the wisdom of God, you are rich. You're the richest person in the whole wide world. It's a priceless privilege to be able to walk in the Lord's wisdom You know, one of the most haunting uh, pieces of imagery for me in the entire Bible is in the book of Proverbs, where Solomon writes and he portrays wisdom out on the street, calling out to men to come to her and to discover the wisdom that God will freely uh, give. It goes something like this, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the openings of the gates of the city, she speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke, and surely I will pour out my spirit on you, and I will make my words known to you. What if, in the world that we live in, Starting tomorrow, the single great focus of every human being was to seek God's wisdom rather than to seek material wealth. How different would the world be in 48 hours, in a week, in a month, 
Well, we're going to know because I'm describing the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ in, in some respects. The whole world would be different if just this issue were flipped around and wisdom were, God's wisdom was given its proper place over this seeking out for material wealth above all else considering wisdom. Where does this wisdom come from? Where does the wisdom come And where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Death and destruction say, we've heard about it with our ears. And then here's the source. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, when he, then he saw wisdom and declared it, he prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. The marks of a person who has wisdom in life, even with kind of the limited revelation that Job had, living prior to even the law of Moses, much less the covenant that we get to live in. He said it all begins with the fear of the Lord, respect and reverence for God. In other words, we acknowledge the two great rules of the universe. There is a God and you're not him. And there's a big gulf between God and between us. And when a person has that kind of respect for God and reverence for God, then the second thing is going to follow up, and that is we're going to honor him with our obedience. And so departing from evil, repentance, and not only from evil, but then to obedience, these are the marks of wisdom. And then in chapter 29, Job begins to look back on his life, and he begins to long uh, for the good old days. And uh, so here he is, and it certainly isn't unique to him. Anybody that's in this kind of a trial is typically going to look back and remember when life was better, seemingly so, and, and all, and look back for it longingly. And so Joe begins to long for the good old days. Somebody has said that the good old days are made up of two things, a bad memory and a good imagination. Sometimes it's like that. But for Job... The good old days really were the good old days. And so Job further continued his discourse, and he said, Oh, that I were as in months past, and in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, when I knew his favor, and then by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was with me, when I could hear his voice, when we communed together in, in, in the evening, I enjoyed the fullness of his presence, when my children were around me, and then when my steps were bathed with cream and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me, speaking about material prosperity, and he knew it. Cream and oil were luxury in the ancient world. And so he looks back upon all of this, and he longs for all of that once again. And while he's longing for all of that in terms of what he had, he also longed for the respect, the position that he once had in life, the respect that people showed to him. He said, and all of that's gone now, of course. He said, when I went out to the gate by the city, and when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid. 
And so Job was a, a judge in the ancient world. The judges would meet at the city gates. There would be a number of them, and they would rule on the cases that would be brought before them related to the city. So he was a judge. This was the position that he had. When he would walk down the street, the young men would get out of his way because of his reputation and how highly he was esteemed, that respect, not only for age, but for his, his position. Now, the fact that he was a judge uh, gives us some kind of a revelation for why he is constantly asking for a hearing before God in God's courtroom. There's so much legal language that's used in the book, probably because of this uh, part of his background. And he said, the, the young men saw me and hid, and not only the young men showed me respect, but the aged men arose and stood. Very unusual. Uh, the younger always gave great respect to the older, but here were the older recognizing the wisdom and godliness in Job, and they would uh, show respect by arising and standing when he would come into their presence. He's not bragging or anything. This was just who he was in terms of his character, as we'll see in just a moment. The princes, these are the rulers, these are the power people. They refrained from talking, and they put their uh, hand to their mouth. When Job spoke, entered into the room or into a place, even the most powerful people stopped talking, unlike his three friends. They no doubt <laughs> you know, understood what he was saying here. And the voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. And when the ear heard, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw, then it approved me. And so this respect that he was shown, when people saw how he conducted himself and what he spoke, all it did was make people respect him even more. He's just, he's just helping us to understand who he was and, and as a human being. He's not just a person covered with a bunch of sores that are oozing pus out at the moment. This is one of the things that I, you know, I think... Um, you, sometimes whenever something hits us, some great trial, that becomes our identity in front of other people. All they think about us is this thing that has become a part of our life. And sometimes that becomes so great in their minds, they forget, I'm still a human being behind all of this, behind this trial. That medical diagnosis is not who I am. It is what's happening to my body. But the person who was inside of here before that diagnosis was ever given is still inside. I'm a human being. And it's a way of, of letting us know that he had feelings, he had all of these things, he had a history, he had all of these things happening in his life, and, and, and all of these things hurt. He says, because, and here's the reason that he was so highly respected, because I delivered the poor who cried out, and the fatherless, and the one who had no helper, the blessing of a perishing man uh, came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy by taking care of her. In other words, he said, I spent my life taking care of the powerless and the most vulnerable in society. And I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. His, he wore righteousness and justice like clothing. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I became what they could not 
be. And I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case uh, that I did not know. And, and I be, got involved in situations where the poor and the powerless were being uh, abused, and I broke the fangs of the wicked, and I plucked the victim from his teeth. In other words, he confronted the wicked in their oppression of the poor and the powerless. He broke their teeth in, in uh, releasing the victims uh, from the grip of these wicked people. This was his life. This was his character. And then I said, this was his expectation about the rest of his life. He said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as sand. I'm going to have a long life. This was, my root is spread out to, the, out to the waters. My life is always going to be the picture of stability and security. The dew lies all night on my branch. All I'm going to know is prosperity till the day I die. My glory, speaking of his reputation, is fresh within me, and my bow is renewed in my hand, speaking of strength and good health. So he looks and he says, my expectation concerning my life was that it would always be this way until the day I die. I never anticipated that this would happen to me. He said, men listened to me and, and waited and kept silence for my counsel. In other words, his, when he, his words were worth waiting for. And after my words, they did not speak again. Job was just one of those people, and there are people like this, that God just gives a wisdom to and a favor on their life, and they say what they say, and then the rest of us just look and go, meeting adjourned. That's it, right there. And Job had that kind of a, a, an anointing on his life. And, and my speech settled on people as due. In other words, it left them refreshed. They waited for me to speak as for the rain. And they opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. So you have, we have uh, the aqueduct system and we have irrigation and water that comes. So he's talking about farmers looking to the sky for how it would rain and, and, and give moisture to the crops. And I'll tell you, a farmer can look longingly to the sky with anticipation. He said, that's how people waited for me to open up my mouth. No brag, just fact, as the old television show used to say. I'm talking about a very old television show, by the way, for those of you who remember it. There's four of you that remember it, I'm sure. But, but this was, this was, this was who, who he was. And if I mocked at them, they did not believe it. And the light of my countenance, they did not cast down. And basically what it's saying there is that Job was a smiler. When he would come into these situations, it wasn't just grim and everything, and we're going to knock out the teeth of your oppressors and all this kind of thing and the whole deal and everything. Okay, take, do this and do this and then out. He was a guy that came in and he would smile and his countenance would lift people up. Just his face would do it. Again, painting the picture of who this man was. And I chose the way for them and sat as a chief, and so I dwelt as a king in the army as one who comforts mourners. And so he was respected like this benevolent, loving king that he rightly was. But now they mock at me. So now he's thinking about what life was like, and then he describes what it is like to him right now. 
Now they mock at, at me, being treated in kind of a humiliating fashion. Men who are younger than I, which was just anathema in that culture. The young did not disrespect the old. These young men whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. He said, they're the children of their fathers, and their fathers are better than them, and their fathers are so untrustworthy, I wouldn't even allow them to tend the dogs that tend the flocks, let alone tend the flocks. They're just like the scum of the earth, so to speak. And not because of what they are in terms of of what they are innately or that they're worse than somebody else in terms of their potential or that kind of thing, but because of their decision-making in life and what they had become as a result of that. He said, indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. Speaking of these sons, they were physically weak. They're gaunt from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. I don't know, can we just have a show of hands for any of you the last time you had broom tree roots for dinner? No. It wouldn't be a big seller at McDonald's. Even McDonald's wouldn't be a big seller. They'd do something to it though, wouldn't they? grind up some magic something and sell it, and we would love it. Well, you only ate broom tree roots when there was literally nothing else to eat in order to stay alive. And they were driven out from men because they're untrustworthy and unwanted. They shouted at them like as a thief, and they had to live in the clefts of the valleys in caves of the earth and the rocks, and among the bushes they brayed, under the nettles they nestled. They lived like animals, mentally diminished people because of their choices in life. They're the sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They are scourged from the land. He said, that's who's mistreating me. Not talking about princes anymore, not talking about rulers in the gates. This kind of person is now the person that sneers at me. And now I am their taunting song. This is what they do to me verbally. I have become their byword. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They avoid me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Highest insult in the Middle East. And, and here were these people as low as low could be. And then now when they see this moment of vulnerability, they have an opportunity to kind of exercise their superiority now. Here's someone lower than me, and I'll spit in his face. There's hardly a worse scene in the whole Bible until you get the cross of Christ when he was crucified, covered with not only his own blood, but by the spit of man. And because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off restraint before me. So God loosed his bowstring. When you loose a, a string off of a bow, you put it up on the shelf. You're done using it. And so Job is saying, God put me on the shelf. His favor isn't in my life. He's not using me anymore. And so these people are emboldened thinking if God treats them that way, then we can treat them in that way as well. And at my right hand, the rabble arises, and they push away my feet. They deliberately tried to trip him as he would walk. And they raise, they, uh, raise against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They kind of make fun of, I'm trying to walk, and they're getting in front of me and making me go around them and this kind of thing. They promote my calamity. They have no helper. In other words, they do this of their own accord. Nobody's encouraging them. That's the wickedness of their heart. They have come as broad 
lawbreakers under the ruinous storm. They roll along. Tares are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind, and my prosperity has passed like a cloud. They frighten me on top of everything else. I've got to be worried about these people doing me harm. And now my soul is poured out because of my plight. He's just emotionally drained. The days of affliction have take hold of me. My bones are pierced in me at night. So when he would try to sleep, uh, this whatever he had in his body uh, that the devil had done, it was a stabbing pain associated with it. And then not just stabbing pain, but also gnawing pains that take no rest. They were unceasing day and night. And by great force, my garment is defi- disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. And the idea is that when he would try to go to sleep, He would end up wrestling with God, and then when he would wake up from his sleep, his pajamas, so to speak, or his robe would be all twisted around him like a straitjacket. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you in life, but it does when you're having a nightmare or a a bad experience. And he said, this is my nightly portion. He has cast me into the mire. God's treating me like a bully. He's thrown me down into the mud. And, and I have become like dust and ashes, which are kind of worthless garbage. I cry out to you, he says to God, but you do not answer me. I stand up and uh, I stand up and you regard me. I pray to you, but you don't do anything for me. But you have become cruel to me. And in the strength of your hand, you oppose me. You lift me up on the wind and you cause me to ride on it. It's that you throw me around like throwing a feather up in the air during a great windstorm. This is what my life feels like. You spoil my success, for I know that you will bring me to death. This will be the death of me and to the house appointed for all living. I'm, I'm going, I'm going, this is all going to end in death for me. And surely he, that is God, would not stretch out his hand against a heap of, of ruins if they cry out when he destroys it. Have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? And But when I looked for good, evil came to me. And when I waited for light, then came darkness. Mm, Job, he's crossing that line again. And he's talking to God and talking about God. And he's, he's gone too far. And basically what he's saying, and there's an audience there, is he's saying, God, you are treating me worse than I have ever treated a single human being in all my life. That's the accusation. But again, he's in the middle of a trial. He does not see the end of it yet. He'll have a great change of mind when he does. But these are the words that come out of, of his mouth, and they'll be words that he regrets and wish that he could have gone through the trial a little, uh, with a little less of this kind of thing. I think all of us know something of that in our own trials. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and I cry out for help. In other words, he says, where are all of the people that I helped now that I need their help, and they were nowhere to be found. I'm a brother of jackals. Sounds like a motorcycle gang. I'm a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. You say, what's the relationship between jackals and ostriches? 
Uh, both of them make a pitiful sound of, uh, that sounds like a lament, like a mourning. And so he says, this is, I'm making the sounds of these animals. So it tells us that even when he wasn't talking and he's listening to these guys, he's trying to sleep at night, there's just this constant moan that's coming from his body because of what he's in the middle of. Again, it helps fill in the picture for us for the difficulty of what he was uh, in. My skin grows black and it peels from me. My bones, they burn with fever. My heart is harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. In other words, these instruments that should be instruments of joy, they've, they're now just being used to express mourning and, and weeping related to my life. Chapter 31. And Job now closes his whole kind of defense here with chapter 31. The accusations have been made against him. Job, you have secret sin in your life and you have hypocrisy in your life. And Job did something very, very important. And what he did is they made accusations against him. And because they made the accusations, he still took the accusations seriously and he searched his heart in light of what they said. I think it is a very, very wise person that can have anyone speak into their life and we will receive that instruction and allow it to search us and take it to the Lord in prayer. Once we get into a place where we will not receive instruction from people and not take it seriously and take it before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything to this related to my life? You search me. And we start to shut off all of these means by which God can speak to us. We're going to find ourselves in really deep trouble very, very quickly. And to Job's credit is that he took and said, all right, this is what they've said. And I'm going to search myself now for sin just to make sure And he declares himself innocent of a variety of sins as he closes. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? So he's innocent of uh, the sin of lust. For what is, is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he, that is God, not see my ways and count all of my steps? And so he recognized the uh, trouble that lust can get a man into, and so he uh, refused it because of the destruction that it can bring, the disaster that it brings to a human life. Verse 4, he gives the reason why, the presence of God. He said, God watches my way. He knows. I remember hearing a pastor talk years ago. If I said his name, most of you would know his name. And he was talking about the fact he was a new pastor, young pastor, and he was uh, uh, on a California beach. I won't say any more than that. And he was on a California beach, and he was on vacation with his wife. And he had those mirror glasses, you know, kind of the Secret Service glasses and all. And he's just watching the girls go by. And he's just admiring God's creation and how wonderful God is and all of this. God really spoke to his heart related to all of that. And so it doesn't matter... Uh, And thankfully so. So it it doesn't matter whether we can hide it from somebody else. 
God knows. And that, that was the important thing. Job, Job looks at it and says, my biggest concern here isn't this or that. My biggest concern is it will hurt my relationship with the Lord. And then he talks about the fact that he hasn't been uh, a, a deceitful in his business practices. He says, if I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let, uh, let me be weighed in honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, from God's way, or my heart walks after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. If I've been deceitful in my business practices and in my dealings with people, then may I lose everything. And if my heart has been enticed by a woman, now he moves to the subject of adultery, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife Grind for another and let another bow down over her. In other words, if I've committed adultery, let me lose my wife. And he's even stronger than that. Let her become a slave and a concubine uh, to another man. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all of my Increase. If I have despised and the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then will I do when God rises up against me? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? In other words, if I've abused other people with my position and, and oppressed them, and then he speaks about what kept him in line, he said, did not he that is God who made me in the womb also make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? That's a good thing for bosses and powerful people to remember. You may have more opportunity. You may have more wealth. You may have more smarts. You may have more strength. You may have more of a lot of different things than other people have. But all of us are intrinsically the same. We're all born into the world the same way. And God has the same interest in all of our lives And it's important for us, especially in positions of power and authority and these kind of things, to have this attitude that Job had in verse 15. If I have kept the poor from their desire, in other words, food and clothing, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself, hidden and stuffed myself while everybody else went hungry so that the fatherless fatherless should not eat of it. But from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me with thanksgiving for taking care of his need, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless to oppress them, when I saw I had helped uh, in the gate the power to fix their problems, then let my arm fall from my shoulder and let my arm be torn from the socket, for destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. I couldn't live with myself if I have lived as blessed a life as I have lived and not allowed those blessings to translate into the people around me. If I have made gold my hope or fine gold 
and, and said to Feingold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because of my wealth was great and because my hand has gained much, if I have observed the sun when it shines, engage in idolatry, materialism, and then he talks about idolatry here, or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart shall has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment, and I would have denied God who is above. If I have rejoiced at the destruction of even him who hated me, or lifted myself up when evil found him, indeed I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat, but no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened up my doors to the traveler? If I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families so that I kept silence and did not go uh, out of the door Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the numbers of my step, and like a prince I would approach uh, him. And so here he cries out uh, to God once again, God, you know that I'm innocent. You know everything I'm saying about the purity of my heart. You know it to be true. And if you would just write on a sheet of paper, innocent is a decree from your throne and give it to me, I'll wear it publicly for the rest of my life. I need you to step in and bear witness to the things that I'm saying things that you know are true because so much of them have to do with the heart. And if my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, and if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owners to lose their lives, uh, I've either abused my land or abused the help, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are Ended. And so with that, Job ends his speaking, and he now leaves the whole situation in the hands of God. And Job is absolutely confident for all of his, you know, mistakes that he makes here. He's absolutely confident that God is going to vindicate him. And his friends are equally confident that God is uh, not going to vindicate him, but uh, accuse him and, and judge him. And the fascinating thing is we're going to find out in just a few chapters is that God is listening to the whole thing. You know, one of the most sobering things is to realize that God listens to what we say. I remember one time when I was a new Christian, Larry Anderson was one of the assistant pastors, and one morning he was at church and doing all these things, and he had one of these little micro-recorders, and he put it in his pocket, and it was recording his interactions with people the whole morning. And he went home that day and he listened to it. He was, and, and this is a very righteous man. And, and when he listened to what he said and what it was to listen to what he, he determined that, that, that he was going to improve on that. He didn't say anything foul or anything like that, but to realize, wow, I can do better with speech than this. And I think all of us understand something about that. 
But God listens to what we're saying. And that's going to be a sobering thing when God begins to deal with Job, begins to deal with his three friends there, and to realize he listened to everything, and he's got something to say about everything that has been said. But first, a very young man by the name of Elihu is going to jump in, and he's so smart, he's going to rebuke everybody, Job and the three friends, and we'll look forward to that next time. Let's stand together. If you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that's what this service is about for you tonight, for you to get saved and begin a relationship with God, receive everlasting life. And there are going to be pastors and others up in front after the service. We'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin a relationship with God Almighty, to receive His forgiveness tonight and His grace in our lives Take advantage of the opportunity. If you need prayer for anything in your life, of course, they'd love to pray with you and to pray for you as well. Let's pray together now. Thank you, Lord, for these chapters. And we thank you for this big picture of Job that you're putting together and the great lesson that you're building too. We thank you for your word, just the joy of being able to study it together tonight and to be able to worship you tonight. And we close tonight in the same way that we began, just giving you praise for being our God, saying, Lord, thank you in a way that words can never express. So we ask that you look at our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being your children. Thank you for being our Abba Father. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of this life that is ours. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.